Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this podcast we're looking at how to transition to a sustainable ocean economy and why. Several leaders and experts from the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy took part in a webinar examining these questions and this is a condensed version of that. The moderator was WRI's President Andrew Steer, who kicked it off by explaining what the Ocean Panel was. The high-level panel was set up with with sort of three goals, if you like, for a sustainable ocean economy. First, effective protection. Second, sustainable production. And third, equitable prosperity. And it's a jigsaw puzzle. There's not a silver bullet. You need all three if we're going to make progress. Andrew Steer then went on to outline the guiding principles underpinning the panel's work. It is people, humanity's relationship with the ocean. It is the people that both have caused ocean problems. It is people who benefit from the ocean. And it is people that need to be the solution to the ocean problem. Uh, Knowledge is growing at an amazing pace. Data is doubling every couple of years on the ocean. And so the idea is to bring the very best scientists from all around the world to make sure we are learning as we are accumulating data and knowledge. And very, very importantly, this is really about a narrative that brings the economy together with the ocean. Just as in the case of, say, climate change, where, you know, five years ago, people believed that there was a trade-off between climate action and Uh, the economy. We now know actually that smart climate action leads to more economic efficiency, new technologies, it lowers risks. Combined, these lead to a better economy, to more jobs, to better competitiveness um, and and higher human well-being. Exactly the same applies to the ocean, but it's never been documented before. We've never done the kind of analysis that the high-level panel is doing, and so a major report is under preparation. And finally, an action agenda for a really major transition. We've been losing the battle on the ocean and we need a pretty disciplined approach moving forward. First to speak from the panel was Peter Thompson, the United Nations Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Ocean. I'd like to bend your minds in the direction of the solutions rather than the fierce problems that we're facing. Without a healthy ocean, we cannot have a healthy planet. And at the moment, the health of the ocean is in decline. Therefore, the great task of our times is to reverse that cycle of decline. If we're not willing to take on the task, the basic truth is that we're thereby putting it upon those who are coming after us to suffer the consequences, namely escalating frequency and severity of environmental disasters with immense implications for human security. I firmly believe that we have all the ideas and resources we need to succeed at the task. The only wobbly element is political will, from the mindsets of the leaders of nations great and small through to the corporations and commodity owners, right down to the everyday decision-making of local communities and individuals. That means that the wobbly element touches upon you and me. I'll make two more quick points about the problem side. Firstly, what are the causes of the ocean's declining health? One, our harmful fishing practices which includes overfishing, illegal fishing, subsidizing overcapacity of fishing fleets and unsustainable aquaculture. Two, marine pollution, some of which comes from our ships and from the incredible noise we impose upon the marine environment, but most of which originates from our activities on land. 
and what flows down into the sea in the form of plastic, 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 untreated sewerage, industrial chemicals, excess fertilizer, nutrients. Three, the habitat destruction that is caused by cutting mangroves and destroying kelp forests and seagrass meadows, bottom trawling and other seafloor intrusions. Four, steadily increasing ocean acidification, making it harder for calcium carbonate dependent creatures like shellfish to live normal lives. Five, the ever decreasing levels of oxygen in the ocean, adding further stress to life under the waves. And six, ocean warming, causing death of coral, movement of species from traditional habitats and rising sea levels. The first three, fishing pollution and habitat loss can be characterized as man management problems. While the second three, acidification, deoxygenation and warming are intrinsically linked to our greenhouse gas emissions. The second point is that we have the big predicament. The IPCC's report on the consequences of exceeding a 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming tells us that we lose the ocean's coral reefs once we go through the dreaded line of two degrees. Coral reefs are home to 30% of the ocean's biodiversity. What would such loss mean for the ocean's health? I think we can agree it would not be good. That's bad, but it's not the big predicament. The big predicament is that we aren't heading towards 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. The IPCC and WMO have confirmed global warming will be at well over 3 degrees before the end of this century, if current conditions and trends prevail. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, put it in his speech at the Blue Cop in Madrid last December, we are knowingly destroying the life support systems of this planet. That is why I sometimes say that the future of humankind and coral may be intimately linked. Okay, I think you've all got the outline of the problems. What is the story with the solutions? So ladies and gentlemen, the solutions to our fisheries problems are pretty straightforward. Stop the harmful practices, everybody. If we're going to continue to be consumers of wild stock fish, we have to base the industry on strict principles of science-based management. Never catch or consume illegal fish. Prohibit the harmful subsidies that are causing overcapacity in the fishing industry. Support small-scale artisanal fishers. Establish marine protected areas and invest in sustainable aquaculture and other new sustainable sources of marine-based nutrition. Let's just do it. Likewise with pollution. Do the dogged necessary in applying the source-to-sea ethos to our land-based industries, agriculture, sewerage, and waste management. And on plastic, the mantra of refuse reduce, recycle, must be inculcated into the minds of young and old for consumers have immense power. Uh, we now turn to the um, presentation of the paper. Let me remind you that this uh, is one of 16 so-called blue papers that are being prepared, being prepared by groups of scientists, each paper prepared by the leading uh, scientists in that particular area. So far, 10 of them have come out. And the recommendations and commitments that the heads of state will be making will in turn be based upon this sort of accumulation of knowledge and ideas that comes from these 16 papers. So Dr. Mary Ruckelshaus, she leads the Natural Capital Project and she's at Stanford University, so she's going to present it. And each of these papers brings together the, the technology, the economics, the sociology, the governance, the finance, uh, with the idea of sort of putting the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. This particular paper, it sort of stands alone in the sense that it takes a really big look 
at Ocean Governance. So with that, over to you, Mary. Thank you so much, Andrew. So our blue paper really makes the case that a new system of ocean governance is needed to bolster life on Earth through the many benefits that the ocean provides. So we know that oceans are intrinsically linked to all of our Earth's ecosystems on land, in rivers, in deltas, and estuaries. And climate is also a key part of this intricate web. The ocean we think of as a global commons. So this is a shared resource, a public good, and its community. Fish don't pay attention to borders. Similarly, plastic pollution in the open ocean can come from many places, many nations on land or on ships. So these interconnections really showcase how we really need to start thinking about them and how we govern. So our paper uses transition theory and we assess current sector-based governance and showcase compelling examples of needed innovations that are outside of conventional management. And we suggest in order to transition to a more sustainable economy that a more holistic approach is needed. The crux from our view is that the way the ocean is currently governed is weak and fragmented. It consists of a diverse set of institutions that are responsible for designing solutions for common resources in the ocean, but they tend to be organized by sectors. So they're really part of a highly complex system. And complex systems are such that small perturbations can have disproportionately large system-wide impacts, all evidenced by our recent COVID-19 crisis. And the current pandemic demonstrates the necessity to build the kind of resilience that enables effective, agile, and just and equitable responses to these sudden system changes. So this is especially true for the ocean in the complex system that we all depend on. So in order for governance in the ocean to be legitimate, it needs to reflect the norms and values of the society in which it operates and it depends on it. So our paper, we bring a stewardship mindset and this fosters the sustainable use of ecosystems and resources by society in the context of rapid and frequently abrupt change. So now more than ever, we need to understand complex systems and how they can be made more resilient for the benefit of people, the economy and the environment. And we think we've got a way to do that based on what all of us are already doing. So how can humans bring about this needed transition to a more sustainable ocean system? We've found growing realization that three things need to change. One is humans' relationship with nature and the ocean. And the second is the humans' relationship with each other, and especially how we use information technologies that are inclusive and diverse ways of knowing to enable us to collaborate across geographies rather than compete for dwindling ocean resources and benefits. And the third thing is that the relationships between nations need to change and that we need to work more within a multilateral system. Mary Ruckles House of Stanford University. Next up, Andrew Steer directed questions from the webinar audience to Vidar Helgeson, Norway's Special Envoy for the Ocean and Ocean Panel Sherpa co-chair, Jane Lubchenko with Oregon State University and Ocean Panel Expert Group co-chair, and Mary Ruckelshaus. 
Bida, um, if we're going to make the kind of progress we're talking about on, on governance, we obviously need political will at a very, very high level. And that's why the high level panel is so important, heads of state level. What, what are you really hoping for? Uh, give us the inside scoop. Um, and do you feel that the leaders of the world are ready for the kind of change that is required? Well, I certainly hope so. And uh, certainly the 14 sitting and serving presidents and prime ministers on the high-level panel have come together exactly to point to actions needed for the necessary transformation or the necessary transition. And in this COVID situation, uh, there's much talk about recovery, uh, but we shouldn't talk about a recovery as going back to normal. We need to accelerate a transition into something better. And when it comes to the ocean, there are so many connections the way human impacts interact with ocean ecosystems make even more connections. Meanwhile, governance is often quite disconnected. And if we are to achieve more connectivity of governance, more collaboration across sectors in businesses and ocean industries that tend now to be driving their own agenda, and sectors within government, uh, political will is really needed. Because if you don't have that political will to take stewardship, lead, coordinate, ensure integration, uh, sectors will often be left to their own devices, whether they're in industry uh, or in governments or even in science for that matter. I think the, the call here for connectivity of governance uh, is really one that is calling for political leadership. I'd like to probe a little bit, both of you. Um, we face these multiple crises and everybody now is talking about how do we build back better? Um, so lots of in the environmental field, lots of effort to think through, you know, could we use this massive stimulus of 20, 10 to $20 trillion? You know, could we use it to, uh, to promote green energy? Could we, how about nature-based solutions? How about energy efficiency and so on? But obviously there's some pretty important links here to the ocean. Uh, you, uh, Jane, as, a, as one of the co-chairs of the, of the uh, expert group, how, how are you thinking about this, including the issue of resilience? I mean, obviously, we've been reminded by the current crisis that we're not as safe as we thought we were. <laughs> we need a much more resilient world going forward, and we need to start with the ocean, probably. I would focus on two that uh, have sort of been themes cutting through a lot of the blue papers, one is protecting and restoring coastal ecosystems, and a second is seeing the ocean as a solution to climate change. So the first one, protecting and restoring ecosystems. We are learning how incredibly important healthy, productive, resilient ecosystems are to our economies and to our own well-being. And the opportunity to protect and restore some ecosystems that are being lost at a frenetic pace, an opportunity to protect those and to restore them is just the low-hanging fruit of the portfolio of opportunities that we have. Habitats such as wetlands, mangroves, coral reefs, seagrass beds are incredibly important to people, but also to our economies. For example, mangrove ecosystems, seagrass ecosystems, coral reef ecosystems are nursery habitats for many important fisheries. They also provide recreational opportunities and opportunities for job creation. 
One very important function of mangroves, for example, or wetlands is also to dampen uh, storm surge from coastal storms. And these functions are being lost, but the opportunity to protect these key areas and restore them is just a golden one. In 2009, in the United States, when we really had a very serious economic crisis, Congress passed the Stimulus Act, which was intended to infuse a lot of cash into the kinds of activities that would bring back the economy quickly. And at NOAA, when I was administrator in 2009, we had $650 million to do habitat restoration grants. They had to fulfill three criteria. They had to be shovel-ready, so ready to go. They had to have economic benefits, so create jobs immediately. And finally, they had to have long-term economic and environmental benefit uh, because they were bringing back healthy uh, habitats. That $650 million, we did a quick uh, call for proposals and in no time got $3 billion worth of proposals. And that told me that there was just a huge untapped potential to protect and restore these habitats in ways that that connected the dots between the economy, between the environment, and between social benefit. Moreover, when we actually ran the numbers, we discovered, compared to uh, the funds in the Stimulus Act that had been spent on other kinds of activities, that this creation, protecting and restoring ocean coastal uh, habitats, actually created more than two times the number of jobs than any other activity, including building roads and bridges and traditional energy. This is really low-hanging fruit. The other category that I would highlight is specifically seeing the ocean as a solution to climate change, not just as a victim of climate change. And specifically, thinking about the potential for reducing carbon emissions, not just the potential for adaptation, and it's important for both, through a combination of five different categories that we analyzed, there is the potential to achieve as much as 21% of the carbon emission reductions that we need to get to the 1.5 degree target by 2050. So that's huge. So uh, renewable green energy, greening shipping, protecting blue carbon ecosystems with nature-based solutions, uh, shifting diets of people to include more seafood instead of animal protein from the land, all are significant and all add up. So in short, we have some win-win-win opportunities that connect ocean action directly to the things that people care about, whether it's reconnecting with nature for our own benefit, stimulating the economy, creating jobs, and providing new opportunities for people around the world. So time for action on those fronts. Thank you so much, Jane. And Bida, on the economics, the ocean economy, if you like, the new ocean economy, tell us why that is and why is it relevant to this Building Back Better theme and what are we learning? Well, I think Jane just gave a very good case that there are opportunities in the ocean, uh, economic opportunities alongside social development opportunities that can go hand in hand with environmental protection and taking care of the regenerative capacity of the ocean. And if we're able to enable the the ocean to regenerate, 
we can keep harvesting. And those opportunities should be seized. But more than that, they really must be seized because there is more healthy, environmentally friendly, productive capacity in the ocean than there is, in many cases, terrestrially. If you look at food production, we can produce way more protein in much more climate and environmentally friendly ways than we can terrestrially. Politically, it's a challenge that uh, we don't live in the ocean, so uh, political leaders often tend to have their back to the ocean. I think that's changing, but the high-level panel is certainly setting out to really changing the narrative, explaining that uh, we have great opportunities if we take better care of the ocean. And the examples that, that Jane mentioned are really science-based examples that those opportunities do exist. This is not political speak, but political action is needed to reap those opportunities. I'd like to turn to the issue of inequity and the link between that and unsustainability. Could you, um, Mary, say a word about that? And could you just dig a little deeper on the link between the absolute imperative of addressing inequality in the world um, if we are going to make progress? And how does that link to reform of governance? I, yeah, I think that if people's access to ocean resources is unfairly distributed, then as you say, then there are people who will harvest fish, cut down mangroves, fill wetlands, do illegal or unregulated activity because they don't feel like the system is fairly providing them access to resources as other parts of the society is. So that's the downside of inequity and why it leads to problems with ocean resource management and unsustainable practices. What we're seeing is that if people can engage in science policy processes, so the nice thing about the scientific process of learning, sharing knowledge, and then developing strategies and implementing them and monitoring to see their effects, that science process is, is a democratic process essentially. So if you engage people across the economic and social spectrum, people who are deeply affected by the state of the ocean, and many coastal communities are like this, they intuitively understand how mangroves protect them or how coral reefs provide their livelihoods for fisheries, but they need mechanisms to engage in the management of those resources and actually secure their access. So I've seen this happen over and over again in cases where very diverse parts of the spectrum of communities are engaged in articulating the problem itself and saying what is their shared vision and then if they are part of the solution and devising that solution, then you can really get into a, a more sustainable state. Um, like the Chilean turf example, for those of you guys who don't know it, where user rights were established along a coastal region for these large limpets, they're called locos. And the, the local harvesters realized it was being over-harvested and they set the regulations and set the rules by which the harvest would be enacted. And they have learned over 15 or more years how to adapt that system that the people most affected by the harvest, the people whose livelihoods depended on it, designed it. And now there's much less poaching. There's not as much cheating um, by other areas along the coastline. And they've asked the central government in Chile to provide 
regulatory, these top-down mechanisms that secure the rights-based bottom-up innovations that came about. So that model, I think, is very scalable and replicable, but um, it's a challenge. We have to be intentional about putting it in place. Thank you so much, uh, Mary. Jane, I wonder if you'd like to add to that on the issue of equity. And um, I wonder if you could also address another question that's here from a great friend of ours, Roger Sant, uh, who asked the question, the most successful ocean solution has been fully protected marine protected areas or no take zones. Why don't we try to rally the entire world around a goal of 30% protected areas by 3030, 30 times 30? This tension that we're talking about between the top down and the bottom up really goes to the heart of a lot of these global challenges. And so this top down, bottom up tension was really at the heart of this blue paper that Mary presented. It's just so timely for all of these questions. We focused on the importance of governance and on leadership and governance and leadership, people often tend to think of as being just this top down. But in my view, the top down needs to enable and empower the bottom up. And the bottom up gives legitimacy to the top down. And any systems that are too far in one direction or the other often run into problems, especially at the global scale. So what we have seen is a recent heightened awareness about the importance of equity, about inclusion, about diversity, and how those are connected to justice, but also to these broader issues of climate change and ocean health. The kinds of participatory, inclusive approaches to managing local areas are critically important. If we have a marine protected area, for example, many, many of the analyses that have been done by social scientists are telling us that those fully protected, implemented areas that have been created through a participatory process are more successful because the local people have been engaged in the process and have weighed in and have ownership and therefore are better stewards of the resource because it wasn't imposed on them. And so as we focus on the overarching importance of taking better care of our ocean, one of the most powerful and least utilized tools that we have are these fully protected, implemented marine protected areas. Currently, just a little over 2% of the global ocean is in those fully protected areas. As Roger has noted, there's an increased call for uh, supporting 30% in fully protected implemented areas. And this is borne out by the scientific information. We need healthy, productive, resilient ocean ecosystems. And we get those through these fully protected areas. But their creation needs to be a combination of this 30% aspiration that is enabled by top-down processes but also is supported from bottom-up processes. And so we're going to see this continual interaction between the top-down and the bottom-up. There's abundant scientific evidence that suggests that fully protected areas not only protect biodiversity, but can enhance fisheries, allow the fish and other and, and invertebrates, other things in there to grow very large. And when they're large, 
they produce a lot more young. That has knock-on consequences and can replenish adjacent fisheries, and so it can be an important uh, fishery enhancement. We're also learning is that there is huge potential for marine protected areas to also protect stores of carbon that are in the sediment uh, of the floor, the ocean floor. And especially in coastal areas, there is now a new awareness that these marine protected areas can have a triple bottom line impact, protecting stores of carbon, which is really important, enhancing fisheries, and protecting biodiversity. We also need to have better management of the rest of the ocean so that we have sustainable fisheries, sustainable aquaculture, sustainable other uses. And for far too long, the protection and the use components of the ocean have been at loggerheads. People have said, we need more fisheries, so we can't have more protected areas. That's not true. We really need both. It's not a choice of either one or the other. We have the solutions. We need to look at these models. We need to scale them up. We need to uh, escalate them. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about what the high-level panel is doing, is providing a deep dive into these particular topics, but also a mechanism for integrating across them. Tourism is, is going to take a, a long time, potentially, to recover due to restrictions on travel, higher cost of airfares. Is there a way of being creative, using the economy of the ocean, maybe getting you know, figuring out whether we get higher prices for fish, or is there anything there that we can say that is constructive? We've been working with the Inter-American Development Bank as one example for all 26 Latin America in the Caribbean countries to think about this build back better idea that you mentioned, Andrew and others, around how do we stimulate economic recovery post-COVID. So that's a really important question. And this issue about tourism being the mainstay of many economies of coastal nations in the Latin American Caribbean region is a big challenge. So two things that have come up for job and livelihood support to really stimulate economic recovery using nature-based solutions have been what she mentions. One is fisheries so that you can think about licensing fisheries for sustainable food production. So getting to market in new markets and also using the stimulus money to certify both for local purposes of aquaculture and wild caught fisheries. So there's a lot of opportunity around that sector that hasn't been fully developed and it doesn't rely on tourism visitation. So that, that's one, I think, really promising avenue. It's gonna mean different access to markets. So for example, in the Bahamas, there are some new loans coming to get fisher folk from the remote family islands to get their fish to market. The second one quickly is around disaster risk resilience and disaster risk reduction. Um, and as Jane mentioned, the, the restoration economy using wetlands, mangroves, seagrasses, other coastal habitats, that generates jobs very quickly and it has lasting impact in terms of doing that kind of coastal restoration activities that then confer resilience to sea level rise and storms as the climate continues to change and warm in directions that are putting many of those communities at greater risk. 
Those were the voices and insights of Mary Rucklshouse, Jane Lubchenko, Vidar Helgeson and Andrew Steer. And earlier we also heard from Peter Thompson. You can find out more about all these issues on the Ocean pages of our website wri.org or at oceanpanel.org, which explains the various activities of the Ocean Panel. There's a series of blue papers exploring all the various aspects of a sustainable ocean economy, from climate change to food, the ocean genome, equity issues and much more. If you go to soundcloud.com or the podcast part of WRI's website, you can also find a longer interview with Jane Lubchenko from earlier this year. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.